So good to see everyone out this morning, especially our visitors. We are so thankful that you've come out our way. And if there's any questions or anything about what we do and practice or what's being taught, I'm always available. And I'm sure there's plenty of other members here at this local congregation that would love to sit down and talk with you. Um, but this morning, we just want to make it known to you that we are thankful for your presence and thank you for coming out uh, to open up another portion of God's Word and study. And so this morning, if you haven't seen yet, we're going to be talking about predestination and free will. The Bible, I do believe, teaches, New Testament, teaches that there is such a thing as predestination. However, is it predestination in the sense of how it's taught by the masses, how so many people tend to believe and teach uh, their thoughts on the matter. Uh, in short, here's what you might hear. Well, God has already decided and chosen who He's going to save and who He will not save, as in He's got like a saved master list, and if your name's not on that master list, right, and they, they try to use some biblical principles to try to make it sound really good. If your name's not on the list, and there are passages that talks about how our name being written in the book of life. And so they'll try to utilize those passages to, to intertwine it to make it seem like, well, see, God's already, since the beginning of time, he, He's had people's names written down on that list. And if your name wasn't on that list, guess what? It didn't matter what you do. It didn't matter what kind of faith you have. didn't matter how, how much you obeyed. didn't matter how much you loved Jesus. didn't matter how much you loved your neighbor. didn't matter how much you loved anybody. You were not going to be saved if your name was not physically written on God's list. And what does that do? A doctrine like that takes away from free moral agency, from having free will, the, the being, being able to choose whether or not to believe, whether or not to reject. And so we have some questions that need to be answered. Does the Bible teach that men are compelled to believe contrary to their own will? Because on the flip side, right... Does God force stubborn and rebellious unbelievers into submission and service to Christ? Because on the flip side is, all that example that I just gave you, no matter what you do, you can't be saved. There's this idea of what's called, some people may call it irresistible grace. Where basically, it doesn't matter what you do, God's going to save you regardless of how you live your life. And He will force you into submission. He will cause you and force you to be faithful. So these look at these questions. Does the Bible teach that men are compelled to believe contrary to their own will? If they don't desire to have faith in God, if they don't desire to believe in God, to, to love God, to love their neighbor, to do anything that re remotely even appears to be good... Is God going to force them into submission and service to Christ? Also, another question. Does the Bible teach that men who genuinely, genuinely want to be saved, true penitent believers in Christ Jesus, who are willing to submit to God's will, they're willing to lay down their lives. Faith comes by hearing, hearing through the Word of God, Romans 10, 17. They're willing to do all that. 
that God will refuse to save them, no matter how sincere their faith is. Does the Bible teach these principles, these doctrines? So what is free will? Free will is the power of choice. It's the ability to have a capacity for faith, for some kind of belief, for some kind of system of beliefs. Having the, the willingness to repent and obey God in response to the gospel call. That is free. Or even, maybe not even responding, but you hear the gospel and you say, you know what, I'm not interested. I don't believe it. I reject what you are teaching. Does men have free will? I submit to you that the New Testament is filled with examples of different conversions of individuals where they were always given a choice. And we're actually going to look at four of them this morning. And I'm going to try not to be too lengthy with them, but a lot there's just too much information. <laughs> and so I wanted to give you four examples this morning. And I want us to examine these carefully as to whether or not did, did they choose salvation, did they not choose, did they have a choice in any of it. Think about it. Was it because God did not will for them to be saved or did they choose not to yield to the will of God and remain lost? And so our first example this morning is going to come from Mark chapter 10. And actually you can turn to any of those examples that I have up on the board. I'm going to be reading out of Mark chapter 10. And our first example is going to be the rich young ruler. Mark chapter 10, we're going to start at verse 17. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, now think about this. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? So he's asking the question. He, he has the ability, the means, the want, and the drive. He has the desire to find out from God, what must I do to be saved? What can I do to be saved? Is there anything I can do to be saved? Now I know a lot of that was kind of added to it, but... It's, it's kind of implied within the question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? See? But Jesus answered him, why do you call me good? No one is good except the Father. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. So look at this. And he said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. And looking to him, Jesus felt a love for him and said, One thing you lack. Go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come and follow me. But at these words he was saddened, and he went away grieving, for he was one who had owned much property. And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, How hard it it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. 
So I want us to think about and observe a few things about this rich young ruler. For one, he believed in God. If he didn't believe in God, why would he ask the question, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal eternal life? So clearly, the rich young ruler believed in God. What's one of the aspects of salvation? Belief. Is it not? He believed in heaven. Within this same statement, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And then Jesus, obviously recognizing what this man wants and what he desires, look, his answer to him, verse 21, one thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Because Jesus knew this is what this man desires. This is what he wants. You will have treasure in heaven. Come follow me. And then verse 23, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. Where's that? Heaven. And Jesus knew that that's exactly what this rich young ruler desired and what he wanted. He esteemed Jesus as the good master. Good teacher, what shall I do? All these things are good things. He wanted to be saved. He desired to be saved. Look at verse 19 and 20 again. Jesus says, you know the commandments. Don't steal, don't murder, don't commit adultery. Don't bear false witness. Don't defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said, teacher, I've kept all these things from my youth up. And here's the thing. Now, some people may say, well, he, he probably didn't do all that. Let me tell you something. Jesus would have called him out for it. So it probably wasn't much of a stretch that when this man said, teacher, all of these things I have kept from my youth, he was being honest. Because Jesus, what was Jesus' response? He says, One thing you lack. One thing was all it took. Remember the example of Simon the sorcerer in Acts chapter 8? I'm not turning there, but we're just going to kind of talk about it briefly. In Acts chapter 8, the Simon the sorcerer, he, he heard the gospel and he believed it and he obeyed it. He was baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of his sins. And then Peter and John, the apostles, they went there and laid their hands on the Samaritans so that they would receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So that they could have the, the, the miraculous miracles, the, to be able to speak in tongues, to prophesy, to heal the sick and all of that. And so when Simon saw that the gift of God was get laid on through the apostles' hand, he says, here's money, give me that. And Peter said, it was that one thing. He said, may you perish with your silver. One thing is all it took for him to lose eternal, the, the possibility of him losing his eternal life. And so what did Peter told him? Peter told him, pray that this may not happen to you. And Simon's response was, pray for me. Right? And so Jesus says, one thing you lacked. So this... This rich young ruler, it's not that he was a wicked person. He didn't go around murdering people. He didn't go around terrorizing people. He just had a lot of stuff. And he glorified in his stuff. He, did, he wasn't willing to glorify in God. And Jesus loved him. 
Look at that, verse 21. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said... Because how often has we, have we heard people say, well, Jesus loves everybody, so he's just going to save everybody. Is there anything in this text that indicates that this rich young ruler was saved? Did he have a choice? Absolutely he had a choice. Jesus said, one thing you lack... Go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. All he had to do was do exactly what Jesus said. And despite all of the good things that the rich young ruler had done in his life, he went away unsaved. Why? Because his possessions meant more to him than God. Now, here's the question. Did God force this man to love his possessions more than he loved God? No. We know better than that. This man made the conscious choice to reject God for his own possessions. So if you can't read that little picture I put up there, it's care less about what you own and care more about how you live. Let's look at the thief on the cross, but not the thief on the cross that you're thinking about. Let's go to Luke 23. We're going to talk about the other thief on the cross this morning. Luke 23. And we'll read verse 39 through... 43. One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other, talking about the other thief, this is the, the other thief is the one that most people recognize and what most people talk about. Look, at the other one answered and rebuking him said, Do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, talking about death, and we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Now I want us to think about something. Most of the time, people remember this thief here rebuking the other thief. They remember this thief who, who cries out to Jesus, Remember me when you come in your kingdom. This is the thief that everybody wants to talk about. They don't want to talk about this other thief. The reality is, is that both of these thieves originally had the same attitude. If you look at the context in Matthew 27, verse 44, well, the context is 38 through 44, but I've just got verse 44 up for you. The robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words because the Roman soldiers were insulting him. Everybody, everybody there was insulting Jesus. Nobody liked him. The only people that cared for him there at the crucifixion was his mother and then the disciples that were there until they scattered abroad. 
But everybody was hurling abuse at him. Essentially cursing him out. Making fun of him. But something changed. One of the thieves has a change of heart. And that's the one that we just read about here. The other answered, rebuking him, do you not fear God? Now both of these thieves experience, have experienced the same thing. They've both experienced being tied and nailed down to the cross. They've both experienced carrying their crosses. They've experienced their judgment. They've experienced all the abuse from all the people. And both of them had the same attitude until this one thief recognizes there's something different about this man. Do you not fear God? Now, did God force him to say that? Did he force him to believe in that? Or was that his choice? Think about it. Since you are under the same condemnation, same sentence of condemnation, we indeed are suffering justly for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man, this man, Jesus Christ, has done nothing wrong. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. So this other thief the one that was hurling abuse, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. He could have entered with Jesus into paradise that day, couldn't he? If he would have stopped abusing Jesus, if he would have cried out to Jesus and asked for forgiveness, asked for mercy, say, remember me when you come into your kingdom... He could have tasted paradise too. He had the same experience as the other thief. Now we haven't read the whole context, but this is just some of the things that took place. He witnessed the darkening of the sun. He witnessed the earthquake. He had to have experienced it. They were both still alive. More than likely, he heard the reports of the opening of the tombs that were nearby He had to have heard about the veil in the temple being wrenched and torn. In 1 Peter 2, verse 23, he most likely witnessed the Roman guards and the enemies of Christ and Jesus praying on the cross. If you go to 1 Peter 2 and 23... Peter reveals to us, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return, talking about Christ. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges rightly. This other thief, both thieves, witnessed Jesus praying to God. My question is, did Jesus only have enough grace for one thief, but not the other? Did God already choose to condemn the second thief from the beginning of time? Is that what the New Testament teaches? Is that what the Bible teaches? Think about who Jesus prayed for while he was hanging. 
Jesus prayed for the soldiers in Luke 23 and verse 34. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That sounds like grace to me. Verse 40 and 41. We've already read it. That thief told him, we're guilty of sin, we're condemned of our sin, and it's just. Both men ridiculed Jesus. Both of them insulted him. They blasphemed him. So why the difference? Both men experienced the same exact thing, and yet both of them had different outcomes. Why? Was it because God had already chosen that man's fate? Or was it because the man continued in stubbornness and in sin instead of crying out for God, crying out for mercy and pardon, crying out to the Messiah who was hanging there on the cross and saying, remember me when you come in your kingdom? Whose choice was that? Was that God's choice? Did God let that thief decide or did he not? Now let's go to Acts chapter 24. Acts 24. Let's look at Felix for a moment. We're going to read verse 22 through 27. Acts 24, 22 through 27. But Felix, having a more exact knowledge about the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias, the commander, comes down, I will decide your case. And then he gave orders to the centurion for him to be kept in custody and yet have some freedom and not to prevent any of his friends from ministering to him. But some days later, Felix arrived with Drusilla, his wife, who was a Jewish, and sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. But as he was discussing righteousness and self-control and the judgment to come, Felix became frightened. Now, I wonder why. Why do you suppose Felix became frightened? And he said, go away for the present, and when I find time, I will summon you at the same time too. He was hoping that the money would be given to him by Paul. Therefore, he, was, he also used to send him send for him quite often and converse with him. But after two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus and wishing to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Now let's think about this for a second. Felix was acquainted with Christianity. You look there in verse 22. Having a more exact knowledge about the way. So it's not that he was clueless about faith. He wasn't clueless about God. He was not clueless about Christianity. He had a more exact knowledge about Christianity. He was fair to Paul. He was generous. He was charitable. He made sure. He said, look, don't abuse him. We're going to keep him in custody, but give him freedom. Give him liberty. And don't keep his friends. Don't keep his acquaintances. Don't keep others from coming to him. So he was fair. But then you look there in verse 25. But as Paul was discussing righteousness and self-control and the judgment to come, he became frightened. 
Why do you suppose that is? He was frightened by the idea of judgment. He believed in God. He obviously believed in some form of eternal life because if he's frightened by judgment, what's judgment? Judgment of the good and the bad. The just and the unjust. And if he's frightened by the judgment, what does that tell you? Now, nothing is ever fully spoken of about his final decision. However, nothing suggests that anybody other than Felix himself impeded his conversion. Because nothing more is said about him. With Agrippa, we have a little bit more detail, and we're about to talk about Agrippa for just a moment. But with Felix, he had the choice. He heard Peter preach the, uh, Paul preach the gospel. He became frightened from the idea of judgment, and what did he do? He kept Paul imprisoned, basically for fear of the Jews, to do the Jews a favor. Let's roll on through here. Let's talk about Agrippa. We're going to read verse 1 through 3, and then we'll read 28 through, uh, 26 through 28. Acts 26, 1 through 3, and then 26 through 28. Agrippa said to Paul, You are permitted to speak for yourself. And then Paul stretched out his hand and proceeded to make his defense. And in regard to all these things of which I am accused by the Jews, I consider myself fortunate. King Agrippa, that I am about to make my defense before you today, especially because you are an expert in all customs and questions among the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Some people uh, go out and say that uh, he was a proselyte. So that's why he knew so much about Jewish customs. Uh, And then some just say culturally... He respected the Jews, and so that's why he knew so much. Either way, regardless if you want to say that he's a proselyte, whatever, that doesn't really matter. But the, the point is, is Paul recognized that King Agrippa knew the practices and customs of the Jews. And so, so as to save time, we'll transition down to verse 26 through 28. <clears throat> For the king knows about these matters, and I speak to him also with confidence since I am persuaded that none of these things escapes his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. Talking about, he's referencing, for one, what took place with Jesus, his crucifixion. It was open. It's not that that was a private behind the doors thing. That was a very public matter. Most crucifixions were. In fact, all crucifixions were very public. That's why they would hang people on the cross and they'd leave them up on a hillside to show the people, if you do this, this is what's going to happen. So that's why Paul says here, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? And then he says, I know you do. And Agrippa replied to Paul, in a short time you will persuade me to become a Christian. So let's look at a few facts about Agrippa. Culturally, he's a Jew. He knows about the Jewish practices and their culture. He knows about them. He was well versed about what took part uh, part with Jesus. 
He believed in God. He believed in the Old Testament prophets. And he was even moved by Paul's teaching. In a short time, you will persuade me to become a Christian. Now, sometimes people have tried to create doubt there in verse 28. They try to say, well, what that's doing is he, he was being uh, sarcastic in that you know, his response was, well, Paul, you just think that you're going to come to me and in five minutes convert me? You're crazy. But there's nothing that would suggest that type of belief. Regardless if, if there's any doubt there as to whether or not he took Paul seriously, that's not the point. The fact remains that nobody was responsible for Agrippa's decisions but Agrippa himself. Did God force him to say what he said in verse 28? In a short time you'll persuade me to become a Christian. Did God force him to believe in God and to believe in the Old Testament prophets, but he didn't force him or allow him to become saved? All of these individuals, the rich young ruler, the thief on the cross, Felix and Agrippa, every single one of them had the ability and the free will and the choice to follow God. None of them were willed into eternal condemnation by God. Nothing in the New Testament teaches such. Here's the reality. God wants all men to be saved. So to teach this erroneous doctrine that God has already a master list of those who will be eternally lost, that's just insane. That is crazy. 2 Peter 3, 9, at the end of the verse, it says, Not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Well, if there's some who just can't, who just, no matter what they do, they can repent all they want. God's not going to say, what's the point of that verse? Was Peter a heretic? Did Peter lie? The Holy Spirit must have lied. Then we've got even more issues. God loves every. Body. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. If you choose today to believe in God, repent of your sins, and confess Jesus as the Christ and be baptized in water for the remission of your sins, to have your sins washed away, why tarriest thou? Arise, be baptized, wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. If you choose to do that, God will save you. There's no master list. The Bible teaches predestination in the sense of those who are faithful, God will find righteous. God will find holy. God will redeem them. And those who are not faithful, God will not redeem them. Just as God allowed the rich young ruler to decide, the other thief on the cross, He allowed him to continue in his unbelief. Just as God will allow us to continue in unbelief. But He will not force you to continue in unbelief. 
You have the ability to change your life this morning. God will allow you to decide today, just as he did Felix and Agrippa, the thief on the cross, and the rich young ruler. However, unfortunately for all of them, they all chose to reject God. But there were many in the New Testament who did not choose to reject God. The Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8, starting at around verse 30 through 38. Philip goes to him and asks him, Do you understand what you're reading? He says, How can I unless someone teaches me? And at that point, at that scripture, which was, I believe it was Isaiah 53, Philip preached to him Jesus. And when they came to some water, the eunuch asked him, Here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? What's preventing you? If you believe that Jesus is the Christ, you believe in that with all your heart, and you believe in His resurrection, you too can be baptized for the remission of your sins. And God will wash them away and remember them no more. And they'll have to be, you'll never have to doubt ever again in your life so long as you live. And then if you do find yourself in sin, we still have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. If we go to Him in prayer and we ask for forgiveness, God will forgive us if we repent. So if you're here this morning, And we can help you in any way, whether it's by putting Christ on in baptism, or if you need the prayers of the congregation, you need to talk to someone, whatever it is. If you are subject to our public invitation, won't you come while together we stand and while we sing the invitation song.